Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bible there in the chairs. It's on page 976 there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Now, if this is your first time with us, or maybe you've just been with us a couple of times, I just want to say welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, You should know that we have completed four sermons. We're now starting our fifth sermon in a series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is a book all about what it means to be united in Christ. What does it truly mean to be united in Christ through faith? How does that affect the way we think about our relationship to God? And how does that affect the way we think about our relationships with others. You see, as we are united in Christ, it changes everything. It changes the way that you think about God. It changes the way that God's power is expressed in and through you. It changes the relationship you have with the people sitting next to you. It changes everything. So far, we've seen how being united in Christ begins with a call. That through the gospel, we were called by God to live in God's grace. And this call is not something that we do by our own power. And nor is God's grace some minimal, just little effort that God did at one point in our lives to kind of get us over the hump to him. God's grace is extravagant. God's grace is huge. It is. It's been described so far as the riches of God's grace, which have been, which currently are, and which will continue to be manifest towards those who are in Christ. It's lavished upon us so that we might live according to his holy calling. Friends, this is not wishful thinking. This is a reality for those who are in Christ. It's a guarantee. It's a reason to praise God. You know, we've seen so far in verses 3 through 14, a doxology, a declaration of praise to God. Paul begins this letter overwhelmed by the grace that we have received in Christ. And so he praises God in this one long sentence, focusing on the blessings that are given to us in Christ. These blessings which are past, present, and future, these blessings which are extravagant, these blessings which are ours right now if we are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Did he leave anything out? Well, not according to the word, every. In Christ... God has blessed us by choosing us, by purifying us, by redeeming us, by adopting us, by freeing us and forgiving us from our trespasses and sins, by lavishing his grace upon us, by revealing himself to us, by uniting us and and helping us to grow in our understanding of God's purpose in the world, by bestowing a glorious inheritance upon us, and as we saw last week, by sealing us with himself, the Holy Spirit. These are not just past graces. And nor are they something that are ours in the future. If we can just grit our teeth 
and hunker down and just tough out this life to get to that end. It's not like we're waiting to attain those things. They are ours right now. These present graces are available to us to equip us and strengthen us to have hope. To have hope in the midst of difficulty. To have hope in the midst of loss and hardship and trial and burden and overwhelming circumstances. But also in just the daily grind of life. These are ours. If you've been here for the past few weeks, I I hope that you've been immensely encouraged by knowing that these blessings are yours right now in Christ. I mean, I've tried to make that abundantly clear. I I hope you see that this present reality and, and you recognize it as a source of comfort and joy and assurance and praise for all that God is doing in your life, for what you have been given, for who you are now in Christ. And that's not what you were before. And I hope that that's the case. I hope that as you've been, I know that some of you have, have been memorizing Ephesians. Am I right? And, and I hope that this has been a blessing to you as you have meditated on these truths throughout the week. But I'm guessing that if I talk to each one of you, what we'd see were there were plenty of times in this last month where we weren't living in the reality of what we've been given. Am I right? I'm sure that there have been days. I'm sure that there have been weeks. There have been those moments in your life where you've just struggled to take a hold of these truths, of what you have been given, of how you've been blessed, about how God has guaranteed it. You know, affirming that verses 3 through 14 are true, that's one thing. Living in the reality of that every day having that affect your decisions, having that affect your disposition, having that affect your life, that's completely another, is it not? Living every day in light of these truths is difficult. I mean, especially when the cares and concerns of this world creep in and they choke out life, or when the tasks before us seem overwhelming and they kill our joy, or when the difficulties we face leave us feeling hopeless. Or maybe when the hurt and heartache that we feel actually draws us away from true healing rather than toward it. I'm guessing that I've described a good number of you this morning. And if I have, then that's okay. Because you're in good company. We all struggle to live in light of this text. What you are experiencing, even in spite of all, bless, all of God's blessings available to you, it's not surprising. It's not a shock that you would struggle with this. And, this. and Paul anticipates this. Because ironically, if you look at the text, right after Paul gives this doxology of this, this praise to God for all the blessings that we have received already in Christ, he turns around and he immediately prays that they would be a reality in our lives. See, Paul understands He knows our hearts, that we might profess these things to be true, but have difficulty living in that reality, difficulty accepting them, difficulty seeing how they apply to everyday life. And so he prays that we would truly come to know and understand and live in the hope of these blessings. This is not just a prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. This is Paul's prayer for you. 
And that's what we're talking about this morning. The main idea behind this passage is to pray for a true understanding of the blessings that are ours in Christ. Pray for a true understanding, a deep and abiding, a life-giving understanding of the blessings that are ours in Christ. So let's read Paul's prayer together. Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Father, our God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your hearts may be enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Praise God for his word. You know, our prayers would be greatly helped by studying Paul's prayer here in this passage. So this morning, we are going to examine Paul's prayer by breaking it into three sections. The reason for Paul's thanksgiving, the reasons for Paul's thanksgiving, the purpose for Paul's intercession, and the foundation for Paul's praise. So first, in verses 15 through 16, we see the reasons for Paul's thanksgiving. He begins his prayer of thanksgiving with this phrase, for this reason. For this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Well, what is that reason? What is he talking about? Is it what follows? Is is his reasoning simply their faith and love of the Ephesians? Or is it what comes before? Is it what precedes, namely, the blessings God has given to the Ephesians? I believe it's actually the latter that he's praising God, he's giving thanks without ceasing because of what God has already done for them in Christ. That's the first, the primary, the ultimate reason that he does not cease to give thanks to God because of what God has done. He He praises God, he thanks God, because not because of how faithful the Ephesians followed Christ, it's because of all that God has done in them. He says, I thank God continually because he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I thank God because he has elected you and chosen to present you holy and blameless before him. I thank God that in love he has predestined you for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. I thank God regularly that he has redeemed you from your rebellion against sin and forgiven you of all your sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
I thank God that despite the fact that you are completely undeserving of his mercy, that God has lavished his grace upon you in wealth and riches and abundance far beyond that you could possibly understand. That in his wisdom and his insight, he has made known his will to you, not like in former days. This purpose which he set forth in Christ is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. I pray continually that God would give you, that, that you would know that God has given you inheritance and according to his sovereign purpose so that your hope might be in Christ to the praise of his glory. And I pray, God, I thank God without ceasing that he has sealed you, that he's made you yours, you his through his promised Holy Spirit, that he has shown that you belong to him. God has given you faith. God has allowed you to hear the gospel, to respond to it in obedience. This is God's work in you. I pray that you would understand. He thanks God for his sovereign purposes and how God in his wisdom has applied them to these Christians. You know, this has been my prayer for you guys this week. And thinking about this text, seeing the ultimate reason why Paul praised God, the reason why Paul did not cease to give thanks, had nothing to do with how good bread is. Had nothing to do with just how perfectly obedient Joel was this week. Had everything to do with what God has already done in Christ. Thank God for all that he has done, is doing, and will still do in your life. And so the main reason that Paul does not cease to give thanks for the Ephesians really has nothing to do with circumstances. Remember, Paul's in prison. Has nothing to do with how faithful they are, how mature their faith is. It has little to do with the fact that they heard and believed the gospel, though that is essential and necessary. The main reason Paul continually gives thanks for them is because he knows that God is sovereign and he clearly sees God's work in their lives. He thanks God for how God in his wisdom has applied these truths to these Christians. Now, I'm guessing that none of us pray without ceasing, and we certainly don't give thanks without ceasing. Am I right? Anybody here been able to do that? Well, we should have that desire to grow in ceaseless thanksgiving, right? And if that is your desire, which is a good desire, you need to know this. It begins and ends with the work of God. If you realize what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do, it will lead you towards ceaseless thanksgiving. But God's sovereign working is not without evidence in their lives. Okay? And that evidence is not subjective. Notice that Paul doesn't give a second reason by saying, I thank God without ceasing for you because you have made a personal profession of faith. 
I thank God for you because you have been baptized. I thank God for you because you have taken the Lord's Supper, you've gone through confirmation, or you're basically a good person, or you follow the laws, or you, you know, whatever, you're a part of the church, you attend regularly. He doesn't put anything on that level of subjectivity, of matter of just listening and kind of professing by our own self, by our own standard that we are truly believers. He doesn't leave it there. The second reason that Paul prays without ceasing is because he has, according to verse 4, Uh, 15, heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Their faith in Christ as Lord, submitting themselves to the truth of the gospel, living their lives in light of that, and their love toward how many saints? Some of the saints, the saints that are just like me, all the saints, Brothers and sisters in Christ is evidence that God has truly blessed them and that they truly belong to him. Now, according to chapter 3, verse 1, and and chapter 4, verse 1, we know that Paul wrote this letter from prison. And with a little historical analysis, it would suggest that Paul hasn't seen the, the Christians in Ephesus in about seven years. And more than likely, he wrote this letter from prison in Rome where he had been incarcerated for five years. And even though he hasn't seen them in years and has been in a faraway prison for just about as many, Paul has still received reports of their faith and love. Think about that. Their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the saints was so evident that Paul even heard about it in prison in Rome hundreds of miles away. Their lives demonstrated the gospel. Their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for the saints was so evident that they actually put the gospel on display. He's heard reports. People talk about their faith. People talk about their love. Their faith in the Lord was obvious. Their love for other believers, whether Jew or Gentile, was evidence that the Holy Spirit was at work in their lives and that they were truly recipients of all of God's blessings. They were truly living out Christ's command that we read about in John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. For by doing this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not love the way the world defines it, but love the way Christ defines it. A love that sanctifies, a love that sacrifices, a love that is evident and leads other people to faith in Christ. That kind of love. And this faith and love is an outworking of the heart. Jesus said elsewhere in Luke 6, verses 43 through 45, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
I wonder if you've thought about that in your own life. I think that more than often we, we dismiss that passage, we try to neglect it because we don't want to consider ourselves evil, do we? We define evil as like Adolf Hitler. We define evil as, what's his name, Henry Gosnell. Right? But you know evil is a perversion of what is good. Sin is evil. And we've all sinned. So what does your heart display? How does your life display the gospel? How is the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit evident in your life? If someone who's on the outside, maybe it's a classmate, maybe a, a neighbor, maybe a coworker, uh, you pick someone, if they were to observe you, would they clearly see your faith in the Lord Jesus? Would they know? Would they be surprised by your love toward other believers, towards the saints? How are you serving them? And just look around the room. Look at the people next to you. Okay? Look at these people around here. How are you loving the people sitting next to you? All right, if you're to have a love toward all the saints, then you certainly need to have a love towards the people sitting next to you. How are you doing that? How are you serving them? How are you sacrificing for them? How are you making your love towards them in Jesus Christ known to them? How are you pointing them towards the gospel? How are you directing their lives towards Christ? How are you living in such a way that Christ is exalted even in your relationships with the people next to you? You know, if you're having trouble identifying those ways, guys, examine yourself carefully. It's time to make a change. But perhaps the problem is a little bit more simple. Perhaps the problem is simply that you're thankless. You go through life without thanking God. Do you know that a lack of thankfulness breeds discontentment and bitterness and anger and worry and depression? Have you struggled with any of those types of feelings recently? How have you practiced thankfulness? How have you thanked God for what you've already received? How have you thanked God for the work that he has done and is doing in your life. You know, I wonder how differently our hearts would be if instead of only praying to God about the stuff we wanted, that we would focus on thanking him for all the blessings that we've already received in Christ. I wonder how differently our faith would be displayed if rather than focusing on my own effort and my own work, I would focus simply on God's and thank him for it. Or how God is using other people around you? How is he working in them? How are they being used? I wonder how much joy and contentment we would have if we spent more time thanking God for where he has already led us rather than focusing on the fact that I am not where I want to be. And I wonder how much more we would love others if rather than complaining about how much they aren't loving me in the way that I want them to love me, we would spend more time thanking God for the evidence of his grace in their lives. 
I'm confident there would, there would be a huge change. You know, I, unlike Paul, do cease to give thanks. I do. But by the grace of God, I'm growing in it. And as I've meditated on this passage, I found myself more and more thankful for all that God has already done in my life. I find myself more and more thankful and looking forward to those yet future rewards. I find myself even in the present more confident in God's power in my life to help me to do what he has called me to do. I experience more joy, more delight. I found myself more thankful for you and the ways that I can see the Holy Spirit at work in your lives. And it's caused me to be grateful. And that doesn't mean that things haven't been hard. But I'm more thankful. Whatever your situation that you find yourself in today, Prince, I hope that you understand that you have reason to give thanks. There is reason to be grateful. And so the first observation of Paul's prayer are the reasons for thanksgiving. Second is the purpose of Paul's intercession. Let's pick up back in verse 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. So in addition to ceaselessly giving thanks for them, Paul also makes mention or remembrance of them in his prayers. He's interceding for them to God on their behalf, and he does so for a purpose. And Paul states that purpose in three different ways. He says that he prays for the purpose that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays that God would enlighten the eyes of your hearts. And he prays simply that you might know, that you might know this hope, that you might have this joy in this inheritance, and that you might know God's power at work toward you. Now, when he says a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, Paul is not speaking here of of some deep, mysterious revelation that you just don't currently have. It's not like this Gnostic type of knowledge. He's not speaking of some second blessing or some baptism in the Holy Spirit. He's not referring to a need for further revelation that goes beyond what we have already received in Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, it was the work of the Holy Spirit to give a spirit of wisdom. Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, Isaiah 11, verse 2. And that spirit of wisdom that he gave always pertained to understanding and living out of God's will, knowing what God's will, God's purposes were. In the New Testament, it was the work of the Holy Spirit to impart wisdom and understanding of God's revelation of himself to the minds of believers. Acts 6, 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. All of those passages and many more apply. What Paul is praying here is that the Holy Spirit would give them wisdom and understanding of God's previously already given revelation of himself. 
Furthermore, Paul is not speaking of wisdom in general, okay? Like, how can I wisely spend my money or who should I marry or what career path should I choose? When he says revelation, he's not speaking of visions and dreams and prophetic utterances. Why? Well, because he prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in what? In the knowledge of God. He's praying that they would grow in their knowledge of God. Not not abstract knowledge, not conceptual knowledge, but intimate, personal, and doctrinal knowledge of God. God's not delighted if you get him wrong, right? My wife is not pleased if I go up and tell her how much I love her black hair. She's going to be a little angry with me, right? He wants us to have this intimate, personal knowledge of God. And he adds to that by praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Now, Scripture is full of descriptions of the heart and what that is. This phrase is used in in the Psalms. You see, the heart is the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's the seat of our desires. And just as our bodies follow the lead of our eyes, so our hearts follow the lead of the eyes of our hearts, namely our desires and passions. The problem is, is that apart from the work of God to enlighten our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, these passions are deceitful. The passions are corrupt. The passions are darkened in their understanding. We are lost, having no hope, and without him in the world. Paul says later in chapter 4, verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Instead, he says in chapter 5, verse 7 and following, Therefore do not associate with them, for at one time, get this, at one time you were darkness. He doesn't say you were in darkness. He says you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. The only hope that we have for salvation, the only hope we have for sanctification, the only hope we have of complete reconciliation to God is that God shine the light of the gospel in our hearts to reveal to us the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul prays that God would continue to do so more and more and more in their lives so that they would put off sin, so they would put off darkness, and then they would walk in the light of the Lord. And then Paul prays to God simply that they might know So Paul is praying, really, what he has just praised God for in the preceding passage, particularly verses 7 through 14, that they would know 
how God has blessed them with redemption, with his lavish grace, how he's made known to them the mystery of his will, how they are now recipients of the Holy Spirit so that they might grow in their knowledge of God. So that Paul prays that generally. I want you to know. I want you to know God. But there are three things that he wants you to know specifically. Three things that you need to understand. All right? And he breaks those down this way. First, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Okay? The first way he wants you to know God intercedes for you to know God is that you may know this hope to which he has called you. And Paul prays for those, remember, who have been called by God, right? Those who he calls saints and faithful in Christ Jesus in verse 1. Those who have been blessed in verse 3. Those who have been chosen to a holy calling in verse 4. Those who have been adopted as sons and daughters of God in verse 5. This is God's calling. Those who have been called by God are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling which they have already received in Christ. They're living in their true identity, their identity in Christ. And living that way means pursuing holiness and peace. It means finding freedom in Christ from sin and slavery and death. It's willing to follow Christ in suffering for his glory. This hope of, of this calling is not wishful thinking, okay? We, we misunderstand this word hope all the time. When we say hope, this is what I mean. I hope that I get an A on this test that I didn't study for. Or I hope that I win the lottery. How much likelihood is there in that? Not much, right? Scripture uses hope in a different way. When Scripture says hope, it is a certain and eager expectation for the future. It's anticipation, waiting for the day. It's a longing based upon a guaranteed and set future. All right? It's like, this is a horrible example in comparison to the hope of the gospel, right? Okay? But, but it's like when you plan a family vacation and you've got like all the reservations made, you've got the tickets purchased or whatever, and you're just waiting for the day to, to board the plane, Right? That's what we're talking about. Unless you get an accident on the way, it's going to, be, it's going to happen. But that, that pales in comparison to the hope of the gospel. It is eagerly looking forward to that future reward that is guaranteed to be ours in Christ. Our full and final salvation, the inheritance that is awaiting us, and to be with Christ in glory forever. Paul wants them to truly know and live in that hope to which they have been called. He wants that to affect every day, every moment of their lives. And that's why he's praying. Second, he intercedes for them that they would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In verse 14, we saw this amazing promise that we have a guaranteed inheritance in Christ. It's it's an inheritance that will not be taken away. It's an internal inheritance, an an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. Paul points at it in verse 7 as lavish riches, not, not in terms of physical wealth, but spiritual riches. This inheritance that is ours in Christ will be more glorious than we can imagine. More glorious. And actually, verse 18 points as to why. Because in verse 
18, Paul is not speaking of our inheritance. He's speaking of God's inheritance. We think about this. Our inheritance, of course, is wrapped up in all this, but what Paul is describing here as the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints is describing God's portion, God's inheritance, God's people. God is delighting in the fact that he is saving a people for himself, people from every tongue and tribe and nation, a people of his own possession. God delights in that. He rejoices in that. Zephaniah 3.17, he will rejoice over you with singing. This is the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints. This is God's inheritance, that he delights in you, in saving this people for himself. And as he does, his glory, his wisdom, his power is put on display. As it says in chapter 2, verse 7, so that at the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you realize that despite who you are, despite what you have done, if you are in Christ, you are God's treasured possession? You are his treasure so that he might be your treasure. Paul prays that they would truly know just how blessed they are to receive glory as God's chosen possession in Christ, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Friends, that ought to humble us. That ought to lead us to praise. We ought to marvel at that fact. That is who we are. God delights in you. And the third particular truth that Paul prays that they would truly come to know, truly understand, is found in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now, it is not enough for Paul to say, hey, guess what? God's power is incomparable. God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. That just kind of rolls off of us, and we don't even get it. And so what Paul does here is he layers description upon description upon description. It's not just God's power or the greatness of his power. It's the immeasurable greatness of his power. The second phrase, according to the working of his great might, I mean, that doesn't even capture it, okay? He, he basically says, this is God's, the power of God's power of his power. Look, he just lays it over and over and over again. You could translate it literally, according to the powerful and effective operation of the sovereign might of his will. That gets at it a little bit better. As you ever think about how powerful God is? I mean, really. I mean, just, just think about the sun. We all kind of, I mean, we went to grade school. We kind of understand how powerful the sun is, right? The sun is powerful. All right? Everything that we have, our life is sustained because of the power of the sun. I mean, think about it. 
the light we see, the air we breathe, the change of climate that gives us drinkable water, the heat that warms our bodies, the food we eat, and the gravity that holds us to this planet is all owing to the power of the sun. Scientists have measured the power of the sun in wattage as, give this, 3.839 times 10 to the 26th watts. Another way of looking at it is that the sun puts out more energy in a single second than 2.5 billion of the largest power plants in the world could possibly produce in a single year. The sun produces more in a second. That is powerful. And yet God spoke that into being. And not just the sun, but he spoke the galaxy into being. Galaxies are comprised of anywhere from millions to billions of stars, some bigger, some smaller than our sun. Not only did God speak our galaxy, Milky Way, into existence, God spoke the universe into existence. And they anticipate, they predict, scientists predict that there are approximately 100 billion galaxies. God is more powerful than that. And yet Paul says that the the immeasurable greatness of his power, according to the working of his great might, is directed toward us who believe. It's directed towards us who believe. The incomparable power of God is available to and purposed toward those who believe. God's present power is effective for all who believe, including Paul. Now, Paul doesn't pray this so we can boast in this power that's available to us, so we can kind of name it and claim it and try to speak things into existence. That's not what he's trying to get at here. He prays this for them and for us so that we would trust in God's power even when life is hard and overwhelming, even if we find ourselves like Paul as a prisoner for Christ. You see, he includes himself here in this, don't you? He says, toward us who believe. Paul's not some super Christian. He is a weak and frail man who is just as needy and dependent upon God's power as you or I. But he wants them to know that even in the midst of their hardships, even in the midst of their difficulties, even in in persecution and pain, and when life just does not seem to make sense, God is powerfully at work in them and for their good. And so he prays that they would truly know God's incomparable power toward us who believe and trust in him. Now, friends, just thinking in terms of the way that we pray, how should this change the way that you pray this week? How should this change the way that you pray for yourselves and others? How do you pray that we would truly seek to know God? How do you pray that he would give us wisdom and understanding of his will through his Holy Spirit? I mean, do you pray that you would find hope in his calling? Do you pray that you would submit yourself to in faith to his truth, 
that you would find joy in the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. That you would trust in His great power at work in us. Friends, do you not see how, how this prayer here in verses 15 through 19 is a direct result of what He has just praised God for in verses 3 through 14? Do you see how essential it is for us to truly know and understand the God that we pray to? And how our knowledge of Him is not to fuel just our praise, but our prayers as well. Do you know the hope to which He has called you? Do you know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? Do you know the immeasurable greatness of His power toward you who believe? Well, friends, if not, pray that you would understand that. For some of you, maybe that's coming to faith in Christ for the first time. If that is you, but you're struggling to grasp this, pray that we might know it more and more and more, not just in theory, but in intimate experience. Earnestly pray that we might grow in our knowledge of God. And so we see the reasons for Paul's thanksgiving and the purpose for Paul's intercession. Third, in verses 20 through 23, we see the foundation of Paul's praise. See, Paul speaks of the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. But he wants us to be sure and understand just how great God's power is toward us. And so he says in verse 20, he prays that that power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is Lord over all. That right now He is reigning and ruling. Right now. We can be sure of this because the God of the universe who creates and sustains all of life has raised Him from the dead. Friends, we all understand that death is a bitter and relentless enemy. And despite all of our efforts, despite all of our ingenuity, we can but extend our lives a little. Death is a constant. It's coming to all. We cannot escape it. We all will die. And even our efforts in helping those who are fearful of growing into old age to to try to help them to turn back the clock a little bit, you ever notice how it just makes us look fake and plastic? I mean, what has Botox really gotten us, right? I mean, did you guys see Dick Clark before he died? The dude was scary looking, okay? When you get old, you just have to know that embalming parts of your face are not going to help. They're not. So please don't do it. We mortals are but shadows and dust. But in the resurrection of Christ, we see God's power to overturn. We see God's power to reverse the curse of sin that it has brought upon all of us. Death has no victory. It is not the end. And we can be sure that God is powerfully at work in us because God has raised Christ and will one day raise our lowly bodies, either to eternal condemnation or for those who have faith in Christ to eternal glory. 
And God not only displayed his power in the resurrection of Christ, but he also displayed it in Christ's exaltation. Christ lives right now. He has ascended into the heavens and he sits right now at the right hand of God in glory. And God not only raised him from the dead, but in fulfillment of passages like Psalm 8 or Psalm 110, God exalted Christ to the position of unparalleled honor and universal authority. And it is not that Christ was given this authority that he did not have prior to his exaltation, but his resurrection and ascension reveals to us who he was all along. It is a public display. You see, through his resurrection and exaltation, we now see him for who he truly is, the Son of God, Christ, the victor, the ruler, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. His position is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That there is no power, whether spiritual or earthly, that is superior to him. He has defeated all his enemies. All are in subjection to him. He is supreme over every name that is named. There is no other God, no demon, no devil, no dictator that can stand against him. Not Satan, not Stalin, and not even the Roman prisoner prison that held him bound in chains. Nothing can do that. And not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see, there is not a moment in history in which God is not sovereign over all there is. But at Christ's exaltation, God has made that known in him. Notice from the passage that all of this is past tense. Did you see that? Christ has already been raised. Christ has already been exalted. He is already reigning far above all power. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And as the Holy Spirit enlightens the eyes of our hearts and makes God's wisdom and revelation known to us, we now see the Son of God seated at the right hand where he has been as head of the universe until the day when he returns in glory in the age to come. Verse 22 only continues this. And God put all things under his feet, past tense. And God gave him as head over all things, past tense, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is saying that Jesus is the head, the ruling authority over all things in the universe. All things. And he has given, God has given him, the head over all things, to the church. God has given the head of the universe to lead his church for the benefit of his people who are called by his name to gather themselves to him. And so if you are in Christ, he is not just your head, he is our head. He leads us. He directs us. He informs us. He sustains us. He empowers us. He inspires us. He moves us to act. He is what unites us together. And there is no life outside of him and his body. Do you see what a central place God has for his church? That he takes the Lord of the universe makes him head of his church. 
And though he is speaking here of the head of the universe as he leads his people from every age and every location, you cannot deny the fact that Paul is writing to local bodies of believers. And so though he is speaking of his church universal, it has application in the local body. It is expressed in the local body. God has given the sovereign Lord of the universe to the church to have this particular and intimate relationship with him, which is manifest. It is displayed as concrete and visible. It is given as an expression of Lord, the Lord Jesus and his people in the context of the local church. You cannot separate the two out. You cannot say Christ is my head, but I have no need for his body. You cannot say to yourself that I am part of the church universal, but I am not going to display that in my relationship with the people next to me. It is unheard of. The church expresses this relationship between its head and Christ's body as they gather and unite in local bodies and now this next phrase is one of the most difficult in all of Ephesians the fullness of him who fills all in all what on earth does that mean who's he talking about here well commentators opinions have varied but the fullness of him that phrase the fullness of him grammatically it points to the church saying the church is the fullness of Christ, and Christ fills all in all. Okay? So when Paul says this, he's not speaking of physical or spatial filling, like filling up a a pitcher, filling up a cup. That's the way we think about it. What he's talking about here is in terms of Christ's lordship and our relationship to that lordship. See, he's just talked about how Christ is Lord over all. He is head over all, right? Every rule, every power, every dominion, every authority, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's what he's just talked about. Christ is Lord. Who understands that in the world? The church, right? Do those outside the church agree with that? Do they see that at work? No, the church does. Christ is exercising his sovereign rule right now, but by filling the universe right now, and yet the universe has no knowledge of it. But the church does. The church has been filled with Christ. And as we submit ourselves to the truth and wisdom and revelation that we have right here in this passage, we see that Christ right now is supreme, that he is ruling, that he is reigning over all. Even though it might be hard to see, we still affirm these truths because God has told us so. Christ is reigning. The world doesn't see it, but we have the complete picture. He is supreme. We are the fullness of him who fills all in all. The world doesn't get it, but yet it's true. And as we draw nearer to the day of Christ's return, that age to come, when he returns in glory, one day all will see. One day all will see that he is supreme. But until then, 
We are the fullness of Christ. And it is our joy, it is our privilege, it is our responsibility to help shed light on that reality. Okay? Help people to see that Christ is reigning. We're not adding to his kingdom. We're not extending his boundaries of his rule to another level. What we are doing is merely helping people to see that Christ is Lord over the universe. And so even though in your life there have been many times where it's been difficult to see this and believe that Christ is reigning right now, we look at the hardships in the world, we look at evil in the world, and we just we throw our hands up and we say, what is going on? Well, what God tells us is true, and he calls us to pray that we would have the ability to truly understand it, that we might truly believe and live in this fullness of Christ, trusting that what's happening in the world that the world is what it is and the circumstances in my life are what they are so that in the end we would see and know God better than we did before. Not just for us, but for others who do not know him. As the beneficiaries of all of these blessings of God, again, we have to hold those together. Not just God's sovereign power, but his intimate love. He is both sovereign and personal. We know that he, we have his spirit, his grace, his gifts, his love. We, the church, the body of Christ, live in his fullness. We know the truth. We know his power. We know his sovereignty. We have hope. We see the depths of who he is. We see the depths of his love. And that's not given to all people. That is given to the church. Friends, rejoice in this revelation of what you have been given that others do not have. You have the full revelation of God in Christ. We have been given the fullness of Christ. And praise God for that. And so let that be a foundation of prayers of praise. That God has revealed himself to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you are the recipients of tremendous blessings from the sovereign of the universe. May it lead you to ceaseless thanksgiving, not just for yourself, but for Christ's church. May it overflow in faith and love towards others. May it direct the way that you intercede for yourself and others, that together we might know the hope, the joy, and the power that is available to us. And may it draw us to awestruck wonder and humble praise because Christ reigns over all. A truth and a comfort that God has made known to us, his church. Friends, let this change the way that you pray. Pray for a true understanding of the blessings that are ours right now in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I can only hope that justice was done uh, to your text, to your truth, and that it would lead us into a deeper, heartfelt knowledge and understanding of you. God, we thank you for the blessings that we have received in Christ. 
We thank you for how you are faithful to work even when we are not in in leading us in faith and love. And we pray that that would happen all the more. Father, we pray for us that we would truly come to know you, that we would understand the hope to which we have been called, that we would understand it and rejoice in the fact that we are part of your glorious inheritance in the saints and that you have and you are working in unbelievable power in us and towards us and through us to achieve your perfect purposes in the world. And Father, I pray that we would praise you for the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. And that even when things are hard, even when the world seems hopeless, we would live as those with hope because we know the truth that we have the fullness of Christ. And may we seek to make him known. Father, I pray that we would pray more like Paul and less like the world. Lord, give us an understanding of the blessings that we have in you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.